0: Well, hello. My name is Greg Phipps. I'm the general manager of RMLD, Reading Municipal Light Department. Reading Municipal Light Department serves four towns, Wilmington, North Reading, Reading, and Lindfield Center. We are starting a podcast. We'd like to share all the different crazy things that we do at RMLD. Today, we're going to talk about power supply. We're going to talk about how power supply helps us deliver reliable, low-cost, non-carbon power to our customers, that would be you, our customers. Back in 2021, the uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts introduced some legislation called the 2021 Climate Bill that set some targets to be non-carbon supplied power, 50% in 2030, 75% in 2040, and net zero by 2050. Today, I'm joined by Bill Bullock. He is the director of IRD, Integrated Resources uh, at RMLD, and also by Julie. And Julie is our communications manager also at RMLD. We're going to uh, have Julie at the very end of our discussion answer a few customer questions. or Actually, she'll be asking the customer questions. I think I get to answer those. But for right now, we're going to turn it over to Bill. And Bill, I've got a couple questions. If you could uh, first describe your role at RMLD, a little bit of your background, and then we'll jump into power supply. Sure
1: to be here uh, with Greg and Julie um, on our uh, first episode of the RMLD Current Insights. Um, so I am the Director of Integrated Resources, and as the Director of Integrated Resources, I am making sure that the resources um, needed to meet our uh, load is, is there. Um, so that means uh, power supply is obviously an important part of that but also as part of the integrated resources, we're also um, responsible for interactions with customers that includes you know customer billing, um, setting rates um, for customers, and also um, running the energy efficiency and decarbonization program. So um, you know the energy transition really depends on a lot of factors and um, certainly the biggest part of that is that we're able to decarbonize our power supply. Um, now my background, Um, I I have been in the energy industry my entire career. Um, I started actually building coal plants, um, moved on to uh, natural gas plants, and um, eventually uh, moved on to renewable resources, which is what I'm focused on now.
0: Great. Good. Bill, we're so glad to have you as part of the RMLT team. Um, So power supply, current power supply, Um, give us a little bit of background on what the current power supply looks like, maybe a little bit of an overview, talk a little bit about maybe some of the resources that we use.
1: Sure. So it's a, a complex power supply. We do have um, dozens of contracts um, that comprise it. We try to uh, lock in long-term uh, contracts from diverse resources. Um, and as a result of that, we have um, we, we have a lot of uh, contracts, and currently... Uh, we have a very diverse portfolio, so, and much of it is, is non-carbon um, supply. So we have, we have nuclear assets, um, which are about a quarter of our supply. We have a lot of hydro supply, which is about uh, 30% of our supply. And then we also have um, some uh, growing uh, wind and uh, solar resources that uh, kind of round out the, the non-carbon portion. And then, you know, we're having what we don't contract for. We have to buy off the market. And currently, uh, a lot of that is not non-carbon. It's sort of mixed resources. But uh, our goal is to comply with the 2021 law um, and actually be ahead of that. We do have a plan in place to um, gradually increase the uh, percent of our, our, our non-carbon uh, uh, portfolio so that
0: it does not create price shocks for our customers. Perfect. Yeah. No, no price shocks for the customers. Steady, right. Eddie. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, diversification, Bill. Talk a little bit about diversification in terms of um, how it uh, you know, contributes to the reliability component of our power supply as well as the low cost. And you you talked a little bit already about non-carbon, but give us a little bit of a sense of why um, how that power supply contributes to reliability. Talk to me about geography as well as the different mix and the characterization of different power supply sources. Sure.
1: So we, we do have... Um, Power supplies from all over New England, so there are assets, um, whether they be hydro, wind, or solar assets that are located um, throughout New England uh, that we, we do contract with. Uh, we're always shopping for, you know, the best uh, prices for that, um, and we're trying to get lock in those prices for as long-term as we can. Um, so that we're, we have certainty of supply. And of course the diversity is important because the weather is different everywhere. Um, these assets have very different operating profiles. You know, a hydro plant operates at a very different load profile than Talk a, a solar that. plant.
0: Use, use hydro and kind of contrast that to solar and maybe wind sure. and nuclear. Just a little contrast in terms of how they might look different.
1: Sure. So hydro, um, you get the most output of hydro in the springtime when, you know, the snow starts to melt and it's rainier. Um, of course, this summer we had a lot of rain, so hydro produced more than usual this summer. Of course, that and, and if you look at a solar plant, it's going to produce more in the summer when the days are long and the sun is out and the skies are clear. Um, and then wind is a, a different animal altogether because the, the wind can blow at any time. It's a little less predictable. You know, you know when the sun is going to be out, but you don't know when it's going to be windy. Um, but you know that the wind blows consistently over the year. It's just a matter of of working that intermittency into the portfolio. And then, of course, you know, so I, I did mention sure we do have some nuclear assets yeah. in there. And um, nuclear is good because it provides a very good base load. Uh, you know it's going to be on. You know it's going to be there. And so we have contracted with a significant amount because it helps us meet our non-carbon so goal.
0: It, so nuclear, unlike the other resources unlike hydro and unlike solar and unlike wind sounds like nuclear runs all the time
1: yeah pretty much you know they have they will have uh, scheduled outages so they can do maintenance on on the asset but typically they run um, very consistently at a very steady even load and you can really depend on it so it's important to have that as part of the mix so that we can really meet our our uh, requirements our load requirements
0: so, Bill, we'll talk about costs here in a little more in just a second, but, you know, kind of thinking about nuclear and hydro and solar and wind, um, just a little bit, maybe take us just a moment or two. Talk about how our load profile might look over a 24-hour period, yeah. and then how the load profile might look over the course of a year. Um, and then we can talk a little more about how the power supply has to match that load. Sure.
1: So, uh, typically, you know, we, we're we about 30 percent percent. Thirty to forty percent residential load, um, and we're about thirty percent industrial and thirty um, uh, percent commercial. So, you know, each of those has a slightly different uh, load profile. Um, but what typically happens is, it, you know, it, in different seasons you have different load profiles. But typically, uh, in the summer, um, your the the load is. Primarily driven by air conditioning and the, the change in the load, so the load is going to increase the most in the afternoon when it's the, the warmest, um, and and then it will it hits a peak uh, in the late afternoon, typically when people get home and also turn on their air conditioners at home, and then uh, overnight uh, the the load drops off as the night cools off uh, because it is driven a lot by air conditioning. So. Um, you know, a lot of times we're managing that peak period um, that's driven by air conditioning in the summer. But in the winter, you also have a a smaller peak. So Mm -hmm. when people, uh, you know, in the morning when people wake up, typically um, when furnaces turn on or heat pumps turn on, um, they're going to increase the load in the morning before they go to work. uh, And then you have a a slight decrease in the middle of the day. uh, And then, and you also, in the middle of the day, you'll have Whatever solar generation there is, if someone has solar in their house, it's going to reduce the load. And that that does have an incremental effect on on the total load uh, at RMLD as well as across the entire ISO New England network. Um, and then, you know, in the winter also when people get home, they're turning on lights, they're cooking, they're, um, they're turning on their heat, and the load goes up again. So you get another peak there. Um, we do expect with the adoption of more heat pumps for mm-hmm. heating, which uses electricity as the fuel, uh, that we will see, uh, see more uh, peaks in the winter coming up. Uh, we think there's about a 10-year period before the, the, heat, the heat pumps will create a winter peak that will overcome the summer peak. Um, but it will. We expect it to eventually happen.
0: So it sounds like, Bill, load is changing all the time. And uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to think about how storage kind of fits into both storage, but also how generation adapts to fill in um, the load, kind of a load following, for lack of a better word. But um, just to kind of summarize what you just said a second ago, sounds like highest load summertime typically, driven a lot by air conditioning, driven by weather. There's a winter, uh, little peak for the winter. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like spring and fall, less so because less less weather-related temperatures are somewhat moderate. Right. Um, and I think the other thing you just said is that uh, nighttime is, generally speaking, lower load currently than the daytime, daytime, early evening, of the peak loads. Mm-hmm. So kind of talk a little bit about from the load perspective of load always changing, how the regional network is managed, and then how we might use storage, and how the network might use storage to to adapt to those peaks. Sure.
1: So the regional network needs to make sure, you know, ISO New England was created to make, to manage the market and make sure that there were enough resources generating um, power um, to deliver the load that's there in the demand. Um, so uh, ISO New England is always running um, the control system, monitoring uh, the load and making sure there are enough resources to to meet that load and the same thing each uh, individual um, utility like rmld is making sure that they have enough resources to meet the load that they have um, we we do that and of course we we try to make sure that we have enough um, energy contracted to cover a lot of that um, load but of course you can't predict with perfect precision so there's always going to be a little bit of um, of buying on the smart market and mm-hmm. You know, we, we cover about, we try to make sure we've covered about 90% of our supply and we're we're, we're not exposed to more than 10% of the spot market price. Um, so we, we do try to manage that so that if load is under what we expect, we're not, you know, over-contracted for that load. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then even if there are price spikes, they are, um, uh, you know, mitigated by the fact that it's a small percentage
0: of our overall of load. Portfolio. Yeah. And Bill, we're, we're starting to explore, not explore, you know, we have a storage system already, a battery storage system. Talk a little bit about that and how we use that and how we're starting to um, look at battery storage for more than just peak management. So talk a little about peak management and storage systems and then where it might go. Sure.
1: So a big part of our cost structure is, you know, I talked about how we import power from different assets around New England. Um, so we have to transmit that, that power needs to be transmitted from the resources to our customers yeah. in Reading. So we need to be able, in order to move that power, we need to pay the transmission owners mm-hmm. that own the transmission lines. So a significant part of our cost is, and a growing part of our cost is reimbursing those transmission owners for that for that uh, cost. And, and that cost is determined by how much we import. So by our, basically by our peak usage. Um, So, our battery allows us to dispatch um, the output of the battery to coincide with the peak uh, on the overall system so that we import less when that cost is being calculated. This results in a big um, cost savings to our customers. And, of course, as a a not-for-profit, that savings is passed on to all customers and the benefits are shared by them and anything we can do so we also, you know, the battery is not the only way we try to shed the peak. We also um, we encourage customers to uh, reduce usage during peak periods so that they are uh, so that we can reduce our overall cost. Of course, anyone that participates, you know, if you can uh, run your dishwasher later at night uh, after the peak, if you can um, cook a little later or cook outside on your, your grill instead of mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in on your stove, um, that
0: will help. Um, to uh, shift the peak. so That's part of our peak management program, that's good Bill. Yeah. Um, you, know, you mentioned that transmission is a big piece of our cost structure. Um, we're going to talk a little about you know, how, we, how we look to uh, adopt more renewable, but uh, just real quick summary. Um, what are the key components that make up our power supply cost structure? It's roughly you know, two thir- you know, two-thirds to three-quarters, depending upon what year it is and how much customers use from a yeah. usage perspective. But how big is is power supply in terms of our, in terms of a cost perspective? Yeah. And what are the key
1: components? Yeah, so as you said, it's about two-thirds of our overall cost structure this year. Um, um, and and the cost structure consists of a couple of different parts. There's the energy, where we need to buy mm-hmm. the, um, the actual electricity from uh, the people who make it. Um, and uh, so that is about half the cost. Um, and then we also have the, the transmission cost that I talked about mm-hmm. as we uh, reimburse the uh, transmission owners. Um, that is probably about 40 percent, and it is growing. Um, and then if we look at the um, uh, the capacity, and capacity, I did not talk about that before, but it's similar to transmission, but it's the way that we reimburse the owners of the generation to participate in the market. So, be ready. And be ready for when we need it. So. Um, you know, when when demand is increasing, those um, generation owners will be uh, signaled by the ISO to, to be ready to start up um, because they're going to be needed to run. And as compensation for being ready to run, they are
0: paid this mm-hmm. capacity. Capacity fee. fee. Good. Good. Thank you, Bill. Um, you you know, mentioned that uh, you had talked a little bit about energy that we buy, most of our, the majority of our generation, is outside of our territory. Yeah. And you mentioned that we pay capacity and transmission cost to have that brought to our territory. And then within our territory, we have a distribution network mm-hmm. that feeds the buildings, the houses, the, the uh, industrial facilities as well. Um, you know, as we think about more and more renewable resources, um, talk a little bit about some of the things that we're doing from a Within territory generation perspective, kind of a couple of examples and how we're thinking about it and why that's why that's a direction we should go from primarily a cost perspective. We'll we'll leave the reliability for another discussion in terms of within territory, but talk a little about um, cost. You know why that might be advantageous. Sure.
1: So um, you know I talked about the fact that we do import a significant amount of our power from outside the territory, um, but having generation in territory. Um, so that means that we don't have to import and move on the transmission owner's lines means, and and putting it closer to where our load is means that it it automatically creates cost savings to our customers because we don't have to pay to move that on the transmission line so the more uh the 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 one drawback is that you know um our the towns that we serve are um are pretty densely populated and they you know there is not a lot of open land um so it is a challenge to fit those in, but we are looking for opportunities wherever we can to find that space. And one of the, the things we're looking at is solar on rooftops. Uh, we have commercial um, sites. Are We already have a very robust uh, solar program that a lot of customers participate in, um, but getting more cu- um, larger projects on large roofs um, is really a good way for us to, uh, to integrate. Um, we're also looking at more storage in the in the um, in the territory, which allows us to um, not only um, uh, shave the peaks, but it also allows us to work with the intermittency of the renewables. Because, as I said, you know, with solar and wind, you can't always depend on them operating. So, if you can integrate exactly. some batteries into the system, that allows us to um, to store some of that excess energy when it's abundant,
0: and then discharge it when um, resources are a little lower. Yeah. So, and and uh, you know, you started bringing us into some of the innovative technologies that we're looking at. You mentioned within territory generation. You mentioned uh, solar arrays, um, storage systems. Um, we're doing this work, uh, kind of a school bus pilot program. Talk a little about that and how that might apply to more broadly to EVs. So, what are we what are we doing in that school bus program?
1: Sure. So, the thing about electric vehicles is they do have large batteries, so they're typically. Currently, lithium-ion batteries. So um, that is the the current technology. That even our standalone large utility-scale batteries are also lithium-ion. Yeah. So, but any vehicle has a battery in it, and there, there is a synergy um, with uh, school buses. School buses are used, um, you know, during limited hours, um, typically early in the morning uh, and in the early afternoon. Um, and they're not used in the summer. So in the summer when our peaks are happening, these batteries are, are, are available, they're on wheels, but they're still lithium ion batteries, the same technology that we use uh, to shave our peaks. So we are looking at a pilot to do a vehicle-to-grid um, um, charger on the RMLD site um, so that we can have a bus parked there uh, during peak periods and uh, when it's not being used by the school and it can discharge and help us manage our peak load. So,
0: so very the, innovative program. An innovative program. That's 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 excellent. Pretty fascinating. The um, and talk a little about how that might set the stage um, down the road for our individual customers that have EVs to participate in the program at their choice, of course. But how might that work, and what might that mean for them?
1: Yeah. So um, you know, an, an EV also has a barrier smaller than a school bus,es but it's still there. Um, the good thing about it is there are a lot of them, um, and hopefully there will be more. Um, I think we have about a thousand in our service territory currently, and um, you know we expect that to grow um, significantly over the next few years. Um, and each one of those batteries has the ability to, you know, discharge energy when it's needed. Um, it's just a matter of unlocking the potential of that with the correct uh, charger technology. Right. And if we can do that, we can help share the benefit with the with the car owners so that they can get reimbursed for... A bill credit. Yeah, letting us use the, that energy. And not only does it benefit them through a payment, but it will also
0: help lower costs for all customers. All customers. Excellent. Um, and, and kind of talking about our customers, kind of the last question, um, you know, what other things can they be doing? You know, to talk a little about you know, maybe um, peak management or um, air source heat pumps or EVs, kind of what things can our customers can do to help us manage uh, our cost structure and our gold and, and the the compliance obligation to be non non carbon by 2050? What can customers do? Yeah. Some so things.
1: yeah. So um, one of the important things I talked about uh, shred the peak. So if mm-hmm. they can do that, that will be sure that we um, we're not buying resources when they're the most expensive. Um, so that you know, we, we can, we're able to plan uh, better. So the lower that our 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 peak is um, and the, the flatter our load profile is, the, uh, the lower our cost structure will be yeah. um, because we have utilization of a lot of resources over a lot of hours that tends to drive down costs. Um, but also, you know, customers uh, and a lot of our customers are doing this, they're also um shifting their usage um, from fossil fuels to um to electricity and as we clean up the portfolio um the idea is that that will drive um and Naturally. drive yeah drive the carbon emissions associated with those uses down um so um you know we do provide uh, incentives for heat pumps we do provide incentives for electric vehicles um and we are you know we and we're always willing because we know people have questions, so we're always willing to answer questions. So, you know, you can you can call into the customer service line, um, and if you have a question about whether an EV or a heat pump is right for you, we're happy to help. You know, guide we actually you have that a team process. in place.
0: Good, yeah. Yeah, Bill, thanks thanks for spending time with us today, Bill. Um, you know I, know, I know you and your team spend a lot of time on, on a daily basis managing the power supply portfolio from a tactical perspective and a strategic perspective. So thank you. Um, Julie, we're going to jump over to you. At the end of each episode, we're going to do a, one or two customer questions. Um, I'll let you kind of give a little bit of background. I think you have two questions here, and I'll do my best to answer them before I close.
1: Sure. Well, for starters, that was a great discussion to thank both of you. And as Greg mentioned, we will close each episode with a customer question And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. We have a dedicated email address that is podcast at rmld.com. So if you send us a question and we choose to answer it on the air, you'll get a nice shout out. So today's question is from Casey in Reddit. So Casey's question was, I'd be interested on if you were able to provide examples of switching to a mini split or heat pump. How much money you'd save over time? I'd like to know the break-even timeline from the investment and savings compared to heating my home and cooling my home with oil or gas.
0: From Casey, Casey, thanks for that great question. Um, each house is going to be, each building will be a little bit different. So the details of the size of the system and the configuration of the system, um, you'll need to work with one of our uh, one of the uh, contractors that have been through the, the training program in terms of how to properly size heat pumps. But uh, just for rough numbers, typical single room upfront cost, initial investment would be somewhere between $6,000 and $12,000 just for a, a general range. If you're doing a whole house, where a whole house might be a 2,000 square foot uh, colonial, it might be somewhere between eighteen to up, up toward to $36,000. So. You know, maybe an average of twenty-four thousand dollars for a typical house, and maybe an average of six or seven thousand for a single room. But those numbers are going to depend heavily on um, the actual configuration of your house, and then there are the contractors are actually expert in terms of doing the proper sizing. the The payback period is is the interesting piece, um, and depending upon how hot you keep or how warm you keep your property, or how cool you keep it. Remember, air source heat pumps do both heating and cooling. Um, and so they are intended to uh, substitute for a traditional window air conditioner or a traditional um, central air conditioner. But um, equally importantly, they're intended to um, replace either an oil or natural gas furnace in the wintertime. Uh, one thing about them is that you, it's kind of set it and forget it. You can set it at 68 or set it at 72 or whatever number. And the system actually is very good in terms of managing the temperature in your house. Um, heat pumps are basically moving heat. Um, either into the building in the wintertime from outside into the building or in the summertime taking heat out of the building and you know moving heat from inside the building and moving it outside of the building. So it it the only energy it uses is just to move heat rather than generate heat, which is what oil and natural gas do or resistive electric heat might do as well. Um, they tend to be anywhere from three you know rough average 300 percent efficient where attrition you know and I say 300 percent, You get three times the heat or cool well heat moved versus the power you put in. A very efficient uh, furnace might be in the mid-90s, so much more efficient. Um, So the costs are going to be, your actual operating costs are going to be less than when you're using oil and natural gas to heat, and these new systems are also more efficient than window or um, uh, central air conditioners, so they'll be more efficient as well. Payback period is going to depend upon the initial investment. It could be from a couple of years, maybe up to eight to ten years, depending upon the investment, the size of the system. The best time to be thinking about um, an air source heat pump would be when you are um, thinking about replacing your oil or natural gas uh, furnace system or your air conditioning system. And as Julie mentioned, um, we have experts here to help um, point you in the right direction, get you started. Um, and so hopefully that answers your question, Casey. Thank you. All right. So we'll do, we'll, we'll do one question uh, at the end. Um, Casey, once again, thank you. Uh, we're going to close out this episode. We want to say thank you, Bill. Thank you, Julie. And thank you, Casey, for the question. And uh, we look to see you um, at our next episode of uh, Current Insights from RMLD. And my name is Greg Phipps. I'm the host.